from KGW News, this is Straight Talk with Laurel Porter. Hello and welcome to Straight Talk. I'm Laurel Porter. The nation has been reeling with civil unrest from coast to coast following the death of George Floyd while in police custody in Minneapolis when a white police officer kneeled on his neck for several minutes. The protests sparked in Portland last Friday with peaceful demonstrations that turned into a riot later with destruction caused by a few. Citywide curfews continued for three nights. We've also seen protests in Salem and Eugene and North in Seattle. And the vast majority of the protesters have been peaceful. Senator Jeff Merkley tweeted after Floyd's death, heartbroken and furious. Senator Merkley joins us with more on his reaction to Floyd's death the protests we've seen in Oregon and nationwide, and what he thinks should happen next. We'll also find out what steps he and Congress are taking to address the coronavirus crisis. Welcome to my guest, Oregon Senator Jeff Merkley. Senator Merkley, thank you for joining us there from your office in DC. Thank you, it's uh, great to be with you. Let's start with the death of George Floyd. We are taping this on Thursday afternoon, and there was a public memorial this morning Flags flew at half-staff across the state of Oregon to honor him and mourn him. Video of his death on Memorial Day sparked widespread outrage. Protests from one end of the country to the other, also across many cities around the world. Senator, what was your reaction when you first saw that video? Uh, you know, I've only seen it once because I just can't bear to watch it again uh, to see literally a person it's die before your eyes because of the compression on their, their their neck and nobody else saying what are you doing stop um, intervening in any possible way and i think it's just seared into our minds uh, and doesn't just uh, make us think about george floyd but about all those who have been victimized by abusive practices and that's why there is so much frustration, so much fury in this country that here we are uh, centuries into the dialogue over ending racism. And it seems so alive and well as an institutional force. And we just have to do so much more to take it on. You wrote on Facebook uh, on Sunday, America is smoldering this morning. People are right to be angry. Our law enforcement culture must change. There can be no blue wall protecting racism and brutality. The culture of impunity is a toxic threat to our rights as Americans. We have to do better. The families of the victims deserve it. Every citizen of color who is threatened by the very sight of a police car deserves it. The good officers who want to protect and serve deserve it. The fate of our nation depends on it. Senator, what can Congress do to try to change the law enforcement culture? Now, Laurel, uh, before I get to that point, I've been thinking about incidents in my life where I saw police, I saw sheriffs, and I said, oh, there's somebody who can help me. And uh, years ago, when I was working in Washington, D.C. in the early 1980s, uh, my neighbor had a brother visiting from Mississippi, and we went out on an errand together to find a, uh, something at a hardware store. We didn't know where the store was. And we pulled up next to a sheriff's off uh, vehicle, and I said to him, say, can you unroll the window and ask those sheriffs how to find this store? And I remember him looking over and then turning back and looking straight ahead and saying nothing. And then I looked over and I saw my neighbor, my neighbor's brother, 
um, um, clearly a very black African man, looking, African American, looking at that sheriff's car and being terrified by what he saw. And there was no way he was going to ask them uh, for help. And that huge difference in, in uh, how this dynamic has worked between police and citizens, it's something almost any person from community of color can talk about incidences in their life where they were treated differently because of their skin color and where they had less of a partnership, uh, more fear. Uh, and that is what we, that's at, that's at the root of this. And so we have to change hearts, we have to change training, and we have to change laws. And right now I'm partnering uh, with Cory Booker and Kamala Harris who are leading the effort on a major bill to try to change the structure of, of, of how we work. And they're addressing many, many aspects of, of uh, that dynamic involving uh, institutionalized racism and cases of police brutality. I'm focused on one in particular. And that one is where individual officers, and I want to certainly note here, as I'm sure we all know, that that for every officer who who really uh, does horrific things, there's hundreds who are absolutely wonderful. But, but it's not just, it is something that has to be taken on a systemic way. And so this, this bill that I'm working on would say, if somebody is uh, fired or has a record of things like committing a crime on duty or being involved in death or a serious injury of a civilian, or being involved in a shooting, or being involved in excessive use of force, that that record is a public record, and it is available and there to be utilized if a police officer who has been fired or moves seeks employment in another agency. Because so often when we find a horrific act has been conducted, we also discover that individual did similar things in a previous police department before being let go. We just have to say it's unacceptable conduct uh, and it's not okay just to be fired here and hired there. But a, there are a lot of systems in place that protect officers and a lot of people have commented that the Minneapolis police officer, Derek Chauvin, had 18 complaints of misconduct. He was involved in three shootings, only had two letters of reprimand, just a slap on the wrist. How does that happen? How do you address that? Well, uh, it's, it's a question we're all uh, struggling with. Uh, one of the issues that's being taken up is when and where uh, are our uh, cameras on the police officers required to provide more evidence. How are those files managed? Are there certain chokehold practices that are absolutely banned across the country? Uh, is there a requirement for a clear set of intervening steps uh, before one in the police department uses more aggressive force? And how do we uh, fund training for that uh, across this country? There is a chart that is called Eight Can't Wait and it lays out eight things like banning chokeholds or strangleholds, required de-escalation, require warning before shooting, exhaust, al exhaust alternatives before shooting, these uh, kinds of things. So uh, there are many ideas by experts that have actually been utilized in a number of police departments around the country. We are now trying to focus congressional attention and have members of Congress 
be in dialogue with their police departments, be in dialogue with their African-American leaders and other leaders of communities of color, uh, bring these issues forward and say, well, how do we uh, create good practices that will result in taking on and, and ending discrimination or abusive practices when they occur? President Trump has said if destructive protests continue across the country, he'll invoke the Insurrection Act and send in the military. It's something that hasn't been used since 1992 with the Rodney King riots. What's your reaction to that idea? It's completely inappropriate. And I was very pleased to see Defense Secretary Esper uh, say that in, a, in an interview. And he came with prepared remarks and he was very, very clear that he does not support this, is not a, a appropriate. But beyond that, there is something far broader, which is the president is not listening to the American people about the underlying issues of racism or abuses that occur against citizens in our communities of, of, of color. He is simply saying, I don't like protests and protests are terrible and I'm gonna suppress them with force. And the image that we saw of his team proceeding to use flashbang grenades and tear gas uh, to basically attack a peaceful demonstration so that the president could stand on the steps of a church with a Bible in his hand is going to remain in my mind a symbol of the president's absolute failure to understand uh, the basic issues that we are, are wrestling with and to show any leadership to bring us together to take on those issues. I was appalled to see the abuse of the Bible and the abuse of the church. Uh, I don't think the president understands uh, that the good book talks, talks about beating swords into plowshares or that it talks about turn the other cheek or that it talks about forgiveness and reconciliation. I don't know what was in his mind. There was no sense from the questions he was asked and how he answered that he has any idea of what is in that book. And the, the uh, uh, leader of the Episcopal Church really made that clear in a protest against what he did. You also reposted a photo that shows what looked like military soldiers in front of the Lincoln Memorial. I wonder if you'd comment on that. And, and what are you hearing from your Republican colleagues about how the president is handling these twin crises involving the pandemic and now the protests? You know, we are marking the anniversary of Tiananmen Square. And I see these photos and I go, where is this surely not uh, America uh, of officers uh, who have been stripped of their markings so they do not have a name, they do not have a number, they do not identify what service they serve with, apparently to prevent those branches from experiencing criticism. Uh, and it's, it's a dispiriting sight and it goes back to the president's sense of what he believes in is force against protests, not embracing, embracing the freedom of speech and freedom of assembly that is at the heart of a republic where citizens have a responsibility to cry out against injustice. And that's what citizens are doing.
Are you hearing anything from your Republican colleagues about, about the president's actions and how he's handling these crises? You know, our, our conversations have been diminished because of social distancing. <laughs> and we have no meetings in which we're in the same room. And we walk, even when we walk into the Capitol to vote, we're, we're covered with masks. And um, the, but my sense is that they are really ducking, uh, that they are disturbed, uh, that they do not want to irritate their, their political base by speaking up. A few have in some modest ways spoken up, uh, but it's been extremely, extremely limited. Senator, we're now in the fourth month of the coronavirus pandemic, and you alluded it to, to it there. It's got to be difficult to carry on your work there. Um, cities across the country are beginning to reopen, a lot of counties here in Oregon. What's your biggest concern at this point in the crisis? Well, we haven't put in place the elemental items necessary to get ahead of this. Uh, testing and tracing have to be available and done on a massive scale. I've teamed up with Elizabeth Warren to propose 100,000 uh, tracers uh, be funded across the, the, the country. We need to have everybody who not just has a symptom, but has had contact with anyone who has had the coronavirus uh, be able to get tested. We then need to be able to proceed to uh, tackle outbreaks of the disease by doing pretty significant testing in the vicinity, the neighborhood, if you will, of uh, groups that that person has had uh, contact with. But that requires tracer tracing and, and extensive testing. That is in, by the way, the House bill, extensive funding and support uh, for this. So that's just one of the elements in the House bill called the HEROES Act that has uh, passed overwhelmingly in the House and is being blockaded by the, the Senate Majority Leader, Mitch McConnell, uh, here in our chamber. Well, let's talk a little bit about that, the financial impact on Americans in this fourth and, and the Republicans say final aid package for that they're delaying it for at least a month. Mitch McConnell says that new bill would have to focus on, on uh, jobs and schools, maybe some additional money for small businesses, but he is adamantly opposed to any more uh, extension of the jobless benefits, that $600 a week, because he and some Republicans and many Americans believe that it just uh, really discourages people from going back to work if they continue these $600 a week payments. Do you favor extending those jobless payments? I do favor extending those, those payments. Uh, those payments are what are enabling people to pay their rent and their mortgage. Realize that at the end of last month, 40% uh, of Americans who earn less than $40,000 were out of a job. By now, it may be 50%. It may be half of, of Americans. And if they can't pay their rent, then the landlords are in trouble. If they can't pay their mortgage, uh, then the mortgage servicers and, and those who hold mortgage bonds are in trouble. And that trouble just escalates up. Uh, so we need to help people get through this. Now, Mitch McConnell spent $175 billion in the last bill on a tax provision for the wealthiest real estate investors in this country. So if he's a little worried about spending money to assist working people put out of work, often in part-time jobs, multiple part-time jobs who are getting near minimum wage, then I suggest we take back that $175 billion, something I absolutely would like to do, and we use it to assist really struggling families across America. 
Tens of thousands, speaking of, of getting money to Americans and Oregonians, tens of thousands of Oregonians, almost 30,000, still haven't gotten their unemployment benefits from Oregon. And that doesn't include the gig workers and those who are self-employed. The director of the Oregon Employment Department resigned last weekend over this, and there's a new interim director. But, Senator, how frustrated are you that Oregonians aren't getting the money that you and Congress intended for them to have? I'm extraordinarily frustrated, and I've sent a letter with a whole series of questions saying we've got to get to the bottom of, of, of this. This is just unacceptable. I, I do understand that the department has never seen anything like uh, this volume of applications. Realize if we go back to the Great Recession, we were looking at an increase of about 1% in unemployment per month. And it eventually crested in seasonally adjusted terms between 12 and 13%. Now we're talking about going from 3% to over 14% and doing so in a matter of two months. Uh, and so, it's, it, so I do understand that this is an exceptionally challenging situation, but exceptionally challenging situations recall require a massive, bold, passionate response in terms of, of the, the hiring, uh, the, the amount of forms of communication, uh, the reworking of the, the database. And I'm sure they were working on all of this. It just isn't enough. It's not acceptable that people are going for a couple months without getting their first unemployment payment. It's also not acceptable that the public was misled by the department about the number of people who were being left in the lurch. Uh, we were hearing 35,000, it turned out to be over 200,000. Uh, that is no excuse of any kind can justify that. Senator Merkley, it's time for us to take a break, but we'll continue our conversation with Senator Merkley and look ahead to the 2020 general election right after this. We're back in two minutes. Welcome back to Straight Talk. I'm Laurel Porter. We're talking with Oregon Senator Jeff Merkley in Washington, D.C. Thanks again for joining us, Senator. We were talking earlier about that HEROES Act that's in the House. It's, it's being held up in the Senate. But you said there's some really important things in that act that could benefit Oregon. Tell us about that. Absolutely. There's about a trillion dollars for state and local government across the country. For Oregon, that would be about $10 billion, which would be enormous in taking on the, the challenges that our state and local government has. Uh, there's funding for the testing and contact tracing. There is a lot of funds for housing assistance so that people not are, are not evicted from their homes or, or closed on their mortgages. Assistance with SNAP benefits so people don't go hungry, that the utilities will not be cut off. And very important to the conversation nationally for November, no excuse absentee voting building on the experience of Oregon's lead on vote by mail. I want to switch gears a little bit to um, the election coming up in November. You were the only senator to endorse Bernie Sanders in 2016, and then you, you delayed endorsing him in 2020. How disappointed were you when he suspended his campaign? Laurel, I couldn't actually quite hear your question on that one. I just wondered if you were disappointed when Bernie Sanders suspended his presidential campaign. Uh, no, you know, I didn't endorse this time around because I was supporting the robust debate that was happening between so many capable people on the national stage. 
And uh, I did think that the timing was was right to consolidate behind Joe Biden. So what about that? Are you endorsing fully embracing Joe Biden? I will absolutely be endorsing Joe Biden. Uh, we are in a very dark and difficult time right now, and I think that he is the right leader to take us forward. There's been a lot of discussion about who Biden might choose for a running mate. He said he will choose a woman, but now there's some discussion that he might choose a black woman. Do you have a, a particular nominee that you might be supporting? No, uh, there are so many capable individuals. I really would like to see a, and I've communicated this to, uh, to uh, Vice President Biden, a progressive partner on the ticket uh, to help bring the entire Democratic Party together. And I want to talk about your race a little bit. Um, you're up for re-election in November, and you're being challenged by the Oregon Republican nominee, and, the, and this is her, Joe Ray Perkins. She has said she's a supporter of a group called QAnon, a baseless conspiracy theory that some far-right supporters of Donald Trump have embraced. What are your thoughts about her candidacy? Well, I haven't paid much attention to it. I'm so focused on the work we have before us with the pandemic, with the implosion and with the uh, national issues, demonstrations and conversations on how to address racism. And I haven't heard her talk about any of those issues. Uh, so I'm really I'm really focused on uh, working in the Senate uh, right now. Let's revisit just for a moment uh, the pandemic. And I know you're concerned because wildfire season is coming up. We're into June, so we may see some fires popping up. And you're concerned about our wildland firefighters and their safety when it comes to the pandemic. What steps do you think can be taken to protect them? So Senator Wyden and I held a conversation with BLM, with the U.S. Forest Service and the State Department of Forestry, and they are doing some excellent planning on, on how to completely change how fire camps are done, uh, how people are transported, uh, using more technology in the air in terms of, of, of drones, uh, and really just pondering the, the fact that it will be so hard to do some of the traditional fire lines and so forth. They have got to be even faster in shutting down any small fire that occurs. That challenge occurs, of course, when there is a storm that can start 100 or more fires at, at once. We need to really back them up. They did tell us they do not have the personal protective equipment they need. Uh, that is absolutely top of the list. We have to make sure that they have everything they need from the, the tankers that carry uh, water and fire retardant uh, to personal protective equipment. Let's revisit uh, what's going on with George Floyd across this country. What, what do you want to say to Oregonians about it? I'm going to say and have been saying in conversations uh, through Zoom rooms with group after group after group, uh, there are absolutely important, legitimate uh, travesties of justice in our country that involve institutionalized racism and in horrific cases, uh, her terrible uh, abuse of individuals and that we have to come together in a dialogue with our police departments, uh, with our African-American leaders uh, and work to do everything we can uh, to change. It's not enough to say Black Lives Matter. It's not enough to say I feel your pain. We have to act. We have about 45 seconds left, but you were telling me about a powerful moment that you experienced this morning relating to George Floyd's death and memorial. 
Yes, this morning a, a group of senators got together, almost completely uh, Democratic senators. So I think it would have been a beautiful bipartisan moment. Uh, and we went to Emancipation Hall uh, in the National Visitor Center, part of the Capitol. And uh, we proceeded uh, uh, to spend uh, eight minutes and 46 seconds in silence, the time uh, that the officer was kneeling on George Floyd's neck in, in which, he, which he died. And so to, to stand in silence for that long can say a lot. It's, it's, uh, it really focuses the mind uh, about the tragedy and about the deeper issues that keep leading to tragedies like this happening one after another after another. And I, I just think we all walked away with determination to uh, not just continue the dialogue, but work really hard on legislation and try to force it to the floor of the Senate and get it passed. Senator Merkley, thank you for joining us here on Straight Talk, and we thank our audience for watching and listening. We hope you have a good week.